Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? Hi, this is Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How's it going? Nice to be here. Thank you for listening. I appreciate uh, I appreciate you hanging out. Uh, here's something exciting. A new batch of WTF uh, cap mugs will be available tomorrow from Brian Jones up in Portland. They go on sale at 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Tuesday, May 24th. You can go to brianrjones.com to get yours. I also need him to send me some for the uh, guests. You know, these mugs, which I'm drinking out of one right now, started out as only for guests. They were special, hand-thrown, ceramic, beautiful mugs just for the guests. So there's a lot of guests. They still get them, but now you can get them. And this isn't even a sales pitch. It was just this weird thing that evolved. So what's going on with me? Pow, look out. Just shit my pants, just coffee.coop. Joanna Newsom's on the show today, and uh, she is um, an angelic genius, otherworldly. Very t- it's, it's rare that you meet otherworldly talent. She's one of them. I've only known a couple. Remind me to talk a little bit, a little bit more about that otherworldly business. Obviously, she couldn't bring her harp. That would have been quite an undertaking. So if you want to check her out, you want to check her out before I talk to her, go right now. Go to, go to iTunes and... Uh, Look up Joanna Newsom. Almost anything. The new album, Diver, is uh, pretty great. But uh, there's all, there, there's like five or six records here. Took me a while to uh, to uh, lock in with Joanna, but uh, once I did, it was like now I now I'm the the spell. I'm under the spell. Joanna Newsom is a spellcaster with her magical music. There's a documentary that I'm involved in. I know I'm in it. It's uh, from our, our pals Graham Elwood and Chris Mancini who do uh, that Film Nerds po- the podcast. But it's called Earbuds and it's in the San Francisco Doc Fest. And the screenings are June 4th and 7th. You can go to sfindy.com and click on box office to get tickets for Earbuds. It's about podcasting. But I'll tell you though, the, uh, the feedback sometimes saves me out. Uh, you know, because sometimes I'm just not clear on what it is I do and how it affects people. And, you know, and I choose not to process that. I choose to just, you know, decide that I'm not good enough. Then I get an email like this. And these are just surprising to me because I have no, 
Yeah, the, the, you know, I do what I do here, and, and it has an effect. Uh, the, sub, the subject line is Ali Wong. I'm listening to your interview with Ali Wong, and I had to pull over on the side of the road to write to you. Hearing an interview with a woman conducted by a man, no less, that sounded almost word for word like my experience with motherhood was mind-blowing and emotional. The birth of my three-year-old was near exact to what Ali described. From the anesthesiologist to the torture and joys of breastfeeding, it brought me to tears. Hearing her describe the breastfeeding experience and hearing you listen to it brought back a joy I will never experience again. I was unsuccessful doing it the second time around and there won't be a third. So to hear her describe it was more enjoyable than you will ever know. Thank you for allowing a woman to describe new motherhood in a way that women only do with each other. Thank you for recognizing the transition in identity as something to embrace rather than be ashamed of. This is an interview I will listen to over and over again, Natalie in Dayton, Ohio. You're welcome. I'm glad that you had that experience. It was a very new experience for me. All of it. Uh, uh, and, and I didn't think of any of it other than like, uh, well, she needs to do this now. And, uh, and I will bear witness and be present for it. No prejudgment. I was just sort of like, here we go. Here we go. So otherworldly talent, otherworldly genius. Yeah. Otherworldly genius. It's rare to witness. Sometimes you see it in comedy. Like, I am a guy stuck on the planet. I am a guy stuck in my shit. I'm a guy stuck in my life. I'm a guy that that needs to be grounded in whatever the hell it is to keep me in the world. Because I'll go off in my head. I'll spend a lot of time in my head. You know, and, and that's why I got to stay engaged with shit. You know, stay engaged with the guitar with the people, with the the comedy, like so much of me getting on stage is about me saying like, all right, I'm here and and, and this is where I'm at. Okay, please bear witness because if you don't, I'm mostly living in my head. And the thing about people that can create beautiful things, you know, either through music or dance or film or whatever they're doing, comedy, it, it's just otherworldly things, things that are transportive. People who can get out of their head and and create, you know, almost a, another an alternate landscape uh, is something that 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 I, I love, and it, and it's something that you you rarely see done in a way that is completely mystifying and and beautiful in comedy. Maria Bamford, who's got a new show on Netflix, Lady Dynamite, that's getting phenomenal reviews, and that she deserves it is is a good example of that in comedy. This is a a woman that struggles and wrestles and has, you know, real mental shit going on and then manifests it through, you know, creating, you know, characters and voices and, and, and another world. It's otherworldly. She's otherworldly. She's, you know, she's a gift. She's a gift to the arts. Joanna Newsom, there's another situation that where, where you just, you know, you, you go and I saw her concert and she's there with her giant harp and these other musicians and people are moving around. It's all beautifully orchestrated. And the sound is something like I've never heard before. And I'm transported. I will be transported if I allow myself. You, got, you can't fight the, the lift. You can't fight the, uh, the transcendence. You can't fight the transportation if you want to feel the joy of otherworldly genius. 
My girlfriend, Sarah Kane, makes these paintings. Otherworldly. Where does it come from? I don't know. I'd like to learn how to play harp or do characters or paint. Maybe do some dancing. That'd be fun. Maybe I should take a, a, a modern dance class. Maybe jazz. Maybe I'll take a jazz class. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move you into uh, my conversation with, um, with Joanna. Her, her new album is, uh, is called Divers. It's uh, on Drag City. I think I, I, in this conversation, I might have said uh, nice things about the label Drag City. That was before they ostracized me and made me feel uncool and not good enough. Fueled, fueled the self-critical fire by their uh, rejection of me. But uh, she's on that label, and there's a lot of great people on that label. So let's go now to my conversation uh, uh, with Joanna Newsom. And please, go listen to her music and give it some time. Don't, you know, like, so, there's so much going on. There's so much there, and it's intense. I mean, part of you might go like, oh, I don't know if I can take it. But you can. You can. You're, you're grown-ups. All right, this is me. And Joanna. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts newsome um it's nice to see you joanna thank you i uh i'm i'm a little nervous same you are so nervous what are you nervous about uh talking into a microphone for <laughs> for, 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 for a period for posterity of time. Why am I nervous? Why are, why are you nervous, Mark? Good. That's good. Good rally. Um, <laughs> well, because like uh, you know, your your work is uh, is pretty uh, transcendent and amazing, and requires attention. I don't know if you know that. I mean, <laughs> it like like the first time I listened to it, I think uh, Dan over at Drag City sent me a box of stuff of mm. various stuff, so I get all of your records, sir. Even just holding your records, it's like, wow, it's a lot of records in here. And there's artwork. <laughs> and so like, there's a whole presentation. Yeah, I can see why you're nervous. Right. But my evolution with you has been interesting. You want to hear more about yes, me and you? Tell me about the evolution. Well, Andy brought you up when he was in here. And, yeah. I, and I'm like, I don't know her. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then people started emailing me like, how do you not know Joanna? And then people were like, you have to know her. Oh. Yeah, I got a lot of pressure. Nice. Yeah, a lot of fans of yours. A lot of burner email accounts of mine. <laughs> That's you. Yeah, just like, I'll get him. <laughs> He'll never recognize this name. So, 
my experience seeing you, having not seen you, and um, and having uh, you you are you are were friends with my girlfriend years ago yes. in a scene that like I knew nothing about. Like it, it, I missed a lot of music, and there it was this San Francisco thing that happened. Yeah. That you sort of were identified with. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I knew a little of that. And she gave me one of your CDs that I don't know if you want even on the face of the earth anymore. <laughs> I don't. Really? Uh, I was very happy. I thought like, oh, I got her. Yeah. I got, I that, got is, that is exactly like it's a piece of music or it's a yeah. recorded piece yeah. of a recorded piece of music. document that, that makes me feel like someone got me. Really? Yeah. Why? But what, what, which one do I have? I have... Um, what are the two that you self-released? Uh, uh, one was called Walnut Whales. And that's one, the one I have. One, yeah, that's I have Walnut Whales. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of kidding. I, I, I'm i fine with them. But you didn't release them. No, I didn't release them. On purpose. On purpose. You're yeah, like, they were, because they were, I don't usually notate music because I'm really bad at it. What so. does that mean, notate? Oh, like, like sheet music. Okay. I don't write sheet music out. Um, yeah. And so my way of remembering, you know, songs right. was always to record myself and... Um, at that time in San Francisco, I was living with my then boyfriend Noah, and he recorded some songs for me. Uh huh. And then, and right. then we sort of put them on a, burned them on a CDR, and we're kind of like, I guess I sold them at one or two shows, and then Noah George. Noah Georgeson. He was your boyfriend. He was my boyfriend, and now he's my friend, and he's a great, you know, engineer producer. Musician. He's like on all your records. I think the relationship continues. The relationship, uh, yeah, the friendship continues. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, professional relationship yeah. and friendship. Yes, that's good. Yes, loyalty. Yes, and you respect his talent very much. That's good. Yeah. That doesn't and always happen. No, he also has a he has an extremely great understanding of what I like musically. Yeah, and that you know part of that I think is just intuitive. You know, two people having a similar aesthetic, and part of it is time you know building up a knowledge of the other person well that's sort of what like i i kind of noticed and i still want to start current and go back but i don't know if we're going to pull it off (laughs) is that like as i listened to all the records unfortunately you have a a relatively um small bulk of work in a way yeah like i talk to people at 30 records out and it's a real fucking problem (laughs) (laughs) so like i was able to really sort of take time with the records including the the whale and the one you don't like, yeah. <laughs> and and through the first Drag City record, and then you know, and then into what do you call the Van Dyke's Park record? Wise is East. it Wise East. East? What is that? It's the name of a mythical sunken isle in mm. Brittany, France. No, of course. I, I mean, I should have known that. It certainly grew, and you know what you were able to explore musically and poetically grows with every record. Do you feel that? Yeah, I think. It- I mean, I definitely sort of with every record got interested in looking in a different side or or um, writing with a different set of goals or, yeah. or parameters or obligations or rules or... Did um, you become more aware of that? Because the first record yes. is really just you and the harp almost. Yes, definitely. And and the, the I think it's also a little more, I would describe it as a little more abstract in the sense that like... Or impressionistic or something that there are lyrics in the first record that don't 100% mean a concrete thing for me. They mean maybe a feeling or, right. you know, I'm describing maybe an image from a dream. Right. But I, I definitely think that that shifted over time for me where, you know, partially because when I made that first record, I wasn't really thinking in terms of very many people 
Listening? Hearing it, yeah. And then I, it's weird. I don't know why, but on the second album, I started thinking much, much, much more about the meaning of every single word. Um, so you sort of started functioning as a poet in a way. I don't know. You don't? I mean, I I don't know exactly how poetry is defined. I don't write um, poetry that's not meant to be sung. Right. But um, do you start with writing? Usually I start with melody and very skeletal chord progressions. Really? Yeah. Like I think of it as if you were, if you remembered a song and yeah. then you forgot it by degrees, yeah. like the last thing you would remember about the song, that's usually the first thing I start with when I'm writing, you know, this sort of like whatever the melody is that is stuck in your head and you kind of hear the So you're like changes. summoning something <laughs> that pre-existed you? Like I, um, I, I have a melody that I just, I barely have it, but I know it's all out there somewhere. Yeah. That's how this last record felt. That was the first time I had that feeling. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I don't know if it'll ever happen again, but that well, might be fun. negative. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good point. But how did so? Like, it, it's it's sort of a fascinating. You know, I'm sure you've discussed this in however many times you've talked about this. But to be that that harp's a big thing, man. Yeah, man. I mean, like, I'm looking at you up there, and I'm like, holy shit! I've never seen anyone do that. Like, I've never seen a harp, really, maybe once at a buffet or something when I was a kid. Like <laughs> that might have been me. <laughs> but, like there, like, there can't be that many places that make the big harps. No. So, like, you you know, it's it's pretty much, that's the way a harp looks. There's no one redoing the harp. Yeah. And it, and it has a sort of ornate kind of, like, it's, it's a completely impractical instrument and a completely singular instrument. You just don't see them around much. So, what, what made you do that? Well, I, I started with a really little one. There's a little harps? Yeah, little like folk harps, Celtic harps. Okay. Um, were you compelled by a certain music? How old were you when you did that? I was like four when I decided that that's what I wanted. And it was because I had seen my that my future teacher, Lisa Strazi-Stein, yeah. um, performing somewhere, street fair or something in our little town I grew up in, Nevada City. You grew up in Nevada City? Yeah. That is like... Um, that's like hippie style off the grid in a way. Yeah, it, there's definitely a strong element of that. I was up there. I did a show oh, yeah. up there. At yeah, the, yeah, yeah. At the movie house. Oh, yeah, I heard you did that. You did? Who uh, told you that? Like people you... Every single person I've ever known who lives, you know, it's oh, a yeah. deal. Yeah. yeah. Plus, it's a really small town. I mean, there's a lot of... There's a lot of folks there now that I don't know, which is incredibly weird. The weed feeling. people? Yeah. The, the weed people the, have taken over. Yeah. The legal the weed, weed people. people. Yeah. I didn't know there was yeah. this sort of weird roaming community of weed growers until there, I went up there. Yeah, it's weird. And it's always been, I mean, I grew up with friends whose parents Her made weed. their living yeah. with like small cottage you know, operation yeah. and, you know, fed their beautiful plants like homemade yogurt and yeah. everyone had their special recipe and... For weed? Yeah. And, and you know... Hold on. So <laughs> your family had friends that grew weed and fed it special yogurt that they made probably or they got down yeah. at the... Yeah, I want that. <laughs> that is an accurate That is statement. like one of the greatest... Um, <laughs> hippie memories i've ever heard in my life yeah and yeah. coffee ground i mean you know well, coffee grounds is i know that yeah. one that's good for plants i've never heard yogurt this was one particular dude um <laughs> <laughs> who's still at it yeah. actually but anyway there was an there was a nice balance mm -hmm. you know where 
like I think sort of the local law enforcement looked the other way and and nobody nobody's operation was very big. Everybody was just kind of yeah, you know, paying Growing their own stash and maybe get making enough just to break even. Or yeah, I mean there were definitely people who made their their entire living selling yeah. pot yeah. that they had grown, sure. or you know, providing it to people to sell it. But it was like there was a coziness to it. There was uh-huh. no there yeah. there was not there wasn't this like dark corona of weird vibes that right sort of now this thing has exploded to the point where yeah there's weird vibes i mean i i you love that them? i feel them i love that town i love it forever i i will always consider it my home but there is a slight shift there now it's it's sad when like even like weed such a friendly seeming drug once mm-hmm. it be, once it goes big you know drug people come yeah man because it's not the weed that's the drug it's the money yeah, yeah. man it's all big uh, yeah. agribusiness yeah. now yeah. But and then there's this, but the, the subculture of growers. I I think I talked to somebody. I don't know where I got this yeah. information that they sort of move around sometimes to move around the country. Like they'll spend six months doing the harvest yeah. and then they'll move on that kind of stuff. Yeah, and there's a lot of seasonal work. So like you know trimming season happens and so that's it. Yeah, an influx. Of- and you know what seasonal work brings? Bad news. <laughs> People like on the run from something. Got to move on. Yeah, sort of like carnies. You yeah. know. Yeah. But it's a problem. I'm like my mom works with the local food bank, and oh, yeah? the local food bank kind of exists to service our local homeless community. Uh-huh. And during trimming season, it's just Packed. picked, uh, picked completely clean, right? From just like doofuses who are in town tr- cutting weed and don't want to like <laughs> cutting buds. Yeah, cutting weed. <laughs> yeah, that's how I talk. Um, <laughs> and don't want to like pay for food. What do your folks do? What kind of, what'd you grow up in? What was the environment? Uh, they're both retired doctors. They both retired in the last few years. So what my, kind of doctors? My mom was an internist and my dad is a hematologist oncologist. So, so your, your mom had a, like a general practice up there? She was. Mm, like, yeah. That it more or less translated to general practice. Like she was the doctor, um, like the town doctor. <laughs> like everyone actually, knew her. It's a, everyone, I think everyone does know them, but. It's a it's a little bigger than that. They have a pretty good hospital there, so there's a number. She wasn't like the town oh, uh, doctor wasn't that with her small little back like then? leather yeah. leather bag, the doctor yeah. bag. Yeah. My dad yeah. had one of those, oh. the house call bag. Oh, that's great. Yeah, what man. kind of doctor was he? Uh, orthopedic, but I think nice. that they were huh. given those in back in the day when house calls were still a thing. Maybe a yeah. medical or something, medical school or something. Yeah, here's your little bag. Uh-huh. Go make a house call or two. Oh my! I don't think my parents did house calls at least when I was alive. Uh huh. And your dad was a cancer doctor. Yeah, cancer yeah. and blood. And they disorders. both retired. Yeah, they both retired um, within like a year of each other. Recently. How many siblings you got? I think I saw two of them. Yeah, I have a younger sister, older brother. So that's it. Yeah, that's those it. are the Newsome kids. Those are the Newsome kids. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. musical, apparently. All musical. Yeah, but uh, my sister is mostly a scientist, but she's very musical. She's actually probably the most naturally musical of all of us. Which now, when I annoying. saw them, really? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. When we were younger, she was definitely, like, she's a cellist, and she was definitely the shredder of the family. Uh-huh. On the cello? On the cello. Yeah, just, like, could kick ass. Yeah. Some, yeah. But, so, did they tour the whole tour with you? My brother did. He played, you know, starting in October, and mm-hmm. he also played on a few songs on the record. Yeah, I saw um, that, Yeah. yeah. My sister is in grad school, so she just, this was a fun little, like, oh, last <laughs> stretch thing that she did. Oh, really? But, just yeah, the L.A. Just, show? Or? No, two weeks. She, so she did the whole West Coast. And then what, you just got another cello player? <laughs> no, Ryan Francesconi from my band, who's... That guy's a wizard, man. Dude. 
What the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, he's incredible. Where'd you find that guy? I I originally met Ryan at Lark in the Morning Music Camp in Mendocino Redwoods. Which How, is, when you were a kid? No, I started going to that camp when I was a kid, but I met him as an adult. Uh-huh. He was one of the shredders in the sort of Bulgarian camp. There's a Bulgarian, you know, there's it's just world folk music, and he is a wait um, world folk music. Yeah. Wait, what is this camp? Well, it's called Lark Camp. It, it was when I grew up. It was called Lark in the Morning Music Camp, and but that's I, where you went. Yeah, when you were a kid. Yeah, world folk music was the was the focus. It was at, it was what I did every summer. I mean, I starting I, at I, age what? I think the first time I went, I was nine. Oh my god! So yeah. you were exposed to like all these mystical melodies from you know all <laughs> regions of the world at nine. Yeah. That's pretty astounding. Yeah, I was Thank God to for that place. Mystical melodies galore. Yeah. Some of that stuff, some of the mountain music from certain areas is like, what's going on? Yeah. You know, actually, it's very important for me was that I met this teacher named Diana Stork there. Yeah. She's a Berkeley area teacher, and she taught me West African. She, she basically played on folk harp. Uh, music that she had transcribed from the Korah, mm-hmm. West African music that she had transcribed from the Korah, and then she taught it to me, and it broke my brain into two pieces as like a, I think I was like 12 or 13. So a, a, a folk harp is the smaller harp? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, really, it's a lever harp, so the main difference isn't just size, it's the fact that with a pedal harp, a, a classical harp, you change the pitch of strings from natural to flat and natural to sharp by uh-huh. pedaling yeah and with a folk harp you do it with individual levers that shorten slightly each uh-huh. string uh-huh so west african what what region are we talking is that like senegal yeah oh senegal. so that that yeah. sort of weird ethereal kind of like twang yeah i mean the the, the thing that stood out for me then and i think for diana as well and that she taught me was yeah. the idea of um playing in multiple meters at once. So I had sort of learned polyrhythm, you know, right. which is the like da 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 Yeah, yeah. But the but the polymeter is basically the, the like she taught me this figure, this West African figure where the right sorry, the left hand plays in four four uh-huh. and the right hand plays in three four. Oh my god. And they come together yeah. every twelve beats. And if you play it syncopated, they come together every twenty four beats. Uh-huh. And it was very. So you got to wait a little longer for that <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, but you also have to think. I mean, your right hand is. It, thinking is the wrong word. I when I was trying to figure it out, I was overthinking and I couldn't do it. Right. But you have to like actually break your brain into two parts so that your one part of your brain is sitting inside of the three four meter and the right. other one is sitting inside of the four four meter. And you just have to like you can't think about it. You know, it's the patting your yeah, stomach yeah. and rubbing your head thing. So she taught me that. Um, and you were young. I was young, that thing, and it completely shifted the way that I wrote music from that point on. Wow! So, but like that, like tell me about that moment where you finally got it. Was it like was it like learning to juggle? Like, um, they're all up. Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, it's weird. It's 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 a little trance like actually. You know, the the figure it just goes around and around and around and around, and when it finally clicks over, it's like. It's, it's, I don't know. It's yeah. stop, you stop thinking about it. So <laughs> the, that woman lays, you know, breaks your brain open. She broke my brain open. And then you meet this Ryan cat yeah, later. That was, but okay, that was like 10 years later. But so let's go through it because okay. like it seems to me like, and I'm just projecting that, you know, collaboration is, is, has really sort of evolved 
you as a musician, and you seem to like it. I do like it. Uh, it didn't seem to happen for a while. <laughs> well, it's it depends what we're talking about when we say collaboration. Like I, right, I, I put, I'll be more specific. Yeah, I put one. Diana in the teacher category. No, 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 like I know, but like, yeah. so you're taking all this in. Yeah. Because like a lot of times you listen to music and there's so many points of musical reference that I don't imagine that you necessarily contain all of them. Like I imagine that this guy Ryan, you know, brings a lot with his little world of instruments over there. He does. And also an important thing about Ryan is that even though he's incredibly um, masterful in the realm of, of Bulgarian music, that's not even his quote unquote main thing. Like his, he went to school to be a composer. Right. And he is also a classical guitarist. Of he's playing two. instruments I never heard of. I know he's he's insane, and <laughs> he's the like, whole band learned a couple different instruments just for this tour, so we could keep it. Everyone was jumping around, keep it really tight. You know, yeah. everybody was running around. I yeah. like that element. There was like stagecraft to it, just sort of like, <laughs> oh, that guy's on the other thing. Yeah. Oh, look yeah. what happened. Yeah, and it's also really fun to see Ryan play an instrument that he that he's not like the best in the world at <laughs> oh, oh nice nice but he's got he's got feel he's and got feel yeah yeah he's he was on guitar and he played some banjo right yep. and he played some other thing that has a weird name and another it, thing that has a yeah, weird name tambura caval mbira <laughs> all those yeah. weird instruments from yeah. all over what is it what is the signature of uh, bulgarian music what differentiates it oh uh, well i would be i'm definitely not the one to ask i know there's a lot of um the, the meter is really interesting, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of like nine, eight um, stuff, you know, and there's a particular scale, there's kind of modalities that are typical for Bulgarian uh -huh. music and the instrumentation, obviously, so he plays the tambura, which is very common, um, little, almost mandolin-like uh -huh. instrument. Yeah, but yeah, it has yeah, that was its, nice, yeah. Yeah, completely its own color and timbre that isn't really like anything else and caval is another instrument. Bulgarian, it's it's like a yeah, like a flute. But yeah, it's it's different. It sounds like its own thing. Yeah. Um, what other type of training do you do other other than the the folk music world folk music camp? Yeah. Well, at that point, I was still working with Lisa Stein, my first harp teacher. Yeah. So she taught me classical and um, some Celtic music. Although I was pretty resistant at that age, I yeah. like it now. But I when I was younger, I, I for some reason. I think just because it was such a typical thing for folk harp to play, and I was really interested in breaking it open, breaking it. Yeah, I was, oh and from age ten, you're like, I got to take this <laughs> yeah. somewhere. I was really cool. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, yeah, yeah. rebel harpist. Yeah, um, uh, well, you are kind of. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> no, I don't know. I play. Well, I play the. How's the harp community feel about you, Joanna? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> I I definitely get uh, wonderful support and love from a lot of harpists. Yeah. Um, and then, like, there are some people, like, you know, I told you about how we hire a, a person to right. tune my harp yeah. before the set because yeah. I'm doing other stuff. And in most towns, like, when the promoter will call someone to try to hire someone, maybe, not most, but let's say, say like, half the time, yeah. someone will be like, uh, harpists tune their own harps, actually. <laughs> you know, like, really pissed off about it. Which is true. Like, harpists tune their own harps. I tune my own harp. Yeah. You know, I'll do it during the set. But, right. like, we've got the timings on the day of are right. really, like... So there's a judgment there? There's a heavy judgment are there. Are they like, I'm yeah. not going to do that. Let Joanna tune her own harp. Yeah, that's kind of... that. Is, that's definitely it. <laughs> that's what they say. We'll pay you. We'll pay you yeah. for the work. Yeah, yeah. And then she needs like, to learn. Yeah. But that said, I've met amazing, wonderful 
tuners who will come. I mean, harpists who tune the harp who will say hi and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Say they dig my yeah, my, my your shit. Thin. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so okay. So when do you start? Like kind mm. of. Um, so you weren't at a sight read, obviously. Uh barely. Really? I'm to this day a terrible. Like I ba- the I basically coasted. Like when I, how old was I? Maybe like twelve or. 13 when I started playing the pedal harp and I yeah. started studying with my my classical teacher Petsy yeah. Pruitt um, and she you know insisted that I start not learning everything by ear yeah and then I you know played in a few youth orchestras and began this elaborate ruse of trying to convince everybody that I was reading music when I it was still all by ear <laughs> right so I was like, you were keeping up I was mostly keeping up, yeah, depending ah. on how um, I did better when things were a little less dissonant, you know, when the yeah. hard part is just like completely dissonant, weird um, stuff that is that doesn't stick in your ear as much. It, it really would have helped for me to be a better, a stronger reader. And I didn't really read properly until I had to take, you know, music theory classes in college. And even then, I I read well enough to like, you know, when you're when you're like working on diatonic harmony and counterpoint or whatever, when you're like looking at musical scores, you're not doing them in, or I at least wasn't looking at them in real time. It wasn't like I was playing a piece yeah. to speed with two hands. I could not sit down, put a piece of harp sheet music in front of me, two hands, and just play to speed. I couldn't even play at half speed. I would it would be a, very embarrassing to try to do that at this stage of my life. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I sort of want really badly want to to learn yeah. you know like yeah. to buy some software or whatever adults do and like i know like, <laughs> just go on youtube yeah yeah I, I i'd like that it would I, be so useful to, to well, well you could yeah sure i i'm trying i want to get better at guitar and i just like i've been stuck in the same place for years and it's okay but i'm bored so i, <laughs> I went on youtube the other day just to like finger picking yeah. i want to learn how to finger pick a little bit and there's a guy right there here's how you play the boxer by paul simon huh. And in like you know, and I and I just did it a little bit. I didn't stick with it, but I'm like, this is helpful. But it's out there, so I'm just telling you. Shit. I brought you up to. The, I was. It was weird. I I brought you up today in a meeting. Oh, you did. Yeah. With so, whom regarding what? For some reason, I went into. Uh, I went to a general meeting at Disney Animation. Oh. And very uh, cool. and they're talking about like they're doing these big musical projects, and then like oh. towards the end of the meeting, the guy goes, "Do you sing?" And I go, yeah, I, I like to sing. I, I wouldn't call myself a singer, but I do it, but not professionally. But like, I like it. Why for the musical? He's like, yeah, there's like so many unwritten parts. I'm like, you know, who you got to get who just be perfect for this for singing cartoons. And then they're like, don't say cartoon. I'm sorry for ah! in, a, in a musical animated feature. As Joanna Newsom, check her out. And oh, the guy nice. wrote your name down. So you Very might be cool. a, a turtle or something. Yeah, <laughs> you may have changed my life today. Would you do that? Well, yes, definitely. I mean. Particularly a turtle. Yeah. So when do you start? Um, so your parents are into it. They're like, "All right, she wants to be a harpist." Yeah. Well, I the thing that started happening when I work be when I started studying with Lisa, I started writing. Yeah. And writing, I say, I wasn't writing it down. I wasn't notating most things, but I was composing, and I wasn't music. singing music. I was composing music. I wasn't singing. It was just all instrumental. And who were your influences? What were you pulling from at that? stage what are we talking what age uh i well i i I started writing 
you know, as soon as I started playing. Yeah. Lisa was such an incredible teacher. She 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 said uh, you should write music. Yeah, and improvise as well, yeah. which is you know. You love this lady. I love this lady. She's still around. Yes, she is. Does She's, she come to your shows? She does. All right, so you're writing okay, right yeah, out. So of I was the writing out. Oh, who were your influences with, uh, early on? I, I mean, I don't think I would have even known who my influences were at that stage. I think when I got a little older, it was I was very into when I started studying classical music. I was very into French impressionists. I loved Debussy mm-hmm. um, and Ravel. Mm-hmm. And then when I got a little older than that, sort of like. 16, 15, 16, I got more into like Terry Riley, Philip Glass. Mm-hmm. Um, Philip Glass, compositionally. Mm-hmm. I could, I kind of can feel that a little bit. A yeah. Little bit. There's a momentum to it. Yeah. And he does a lot of polyrhythmic and some polymetric stuff as well, which is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then kind of when I got into college was when I got more into other m- more American earlier 20th century composers like Ruth Crawford Seeger was big, a big one for me. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about most of what you're saying, but but I <laughs> but but no, but it gives me something to learn. I know yeah. there's this whole world of American classical composers that sort of uh, because most of us don't know a lot about classical music, so we only know like 10 names yeah. and we probably couldn't identify uh, a, a symphony that they did or anything yeah. that they composed but you know some of the bigger ones the same with jazz and me yeah but i know like you know there were these like copeland was a big american composer yeah. and there and, and I, I but i i sort of know a little bit of what he sounds like but i'd have no idea what what classical music was in america at that time what did she do well she was part of a crew it was like ruggles i forget his first name um and charles ives yeah and um and actually, Seeger, Charles Seeger, her husband, yeah. was part of this um, group, I guess. Um, and Henry Cowell, he's he's actually my favorite. He was amazing piano, Irish-American dude. Um, and they, they basically were trying to come up with an American classical music yeah. that was not just derivative of European classical music ah. and much as um, early American classical painting and visual art found its roots in landscape and mm-hmm. like the ruggedness and the rawness and right. the idea of pioneerism so also did this musical movement find its roots in trying to illustrate like craggy mountains and canyons yeah. and like obviously uh, especially Copeland had this go west sort of like right, right. you know we here we, we go yeah, yeah. <laughs> well that well that well what what this um reveals to me that that I I noticed about your music is compositionally it's certainly not pop music i mean there are some on some songs that that seem like you know kind of you know compositions that i understand yeah <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. but like a lot of the music is composed in a classical way I I just feel like the best I can do yeah in in describing my influences is yeah. listing a series of the things that I've liked sure. over the course of time right. mm-hmm. but I get really I start losing track of it when I try to describe how if at all they've those influences have actually well, the manifested but, but see they have manifested and it's not on you to explain it because like I can hear elements 
of something that I would identify with Copeland in terms of like there are points and I don't know what record where you're like this is sort of a American sound like there's, yeah, yeah. It, it's almost like like Randy Newman some of like stuff on Sail Away yeah. where you're sort of like there is definitely a tone to American classical music that you know it, you can hear it immediately I don't That's know what right. It, you know what I'm saying? I, I do, yeah. And and certainly depending on where and when you use a banjo, or when <laughs> you, you know that there there are there are points where you you can hear that reverberating through the music, and then there are some that are more exotic, and that would make sense with some of the stuff you've been talking about. Yeah, definitely. You'll sign off on that. I will. I mean, I I think the only thing I would add is just it's not that I don't care about hooks. Like I I I like. No, you have hooks, and I yeah, and I like them. I, I like them too. Yeah. I mean, I like. There is music I would consider very poppy that I Definitely. also think is quite genius. Not mine, I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, music I like to listen to that is very poppy, and it just entered my brain a lot later. Like, the f I didn't really listen to records as such until I, my late teens, and I didn't really until my 20s. What were you doing to entertain yourself? What was going on in the house? Uh, I was... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was... My my friend Jamie, who was originally friends with my sister Emily, has told me the story of yeah. how like she came over after school in yeah. high school to see my sister Emily, yeah. and I was working on, I was playing, I was writing something, I was working on c composing or whatever, playing harp in the family room. How old? Uh, I'm gonna say fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, maybe seventeen. Uh huh. And um, they like went out and saw a movie. And did something else and came back and I was still playing. And then they went on a walk down to Gochin, which is the street, like yeah. the end of our street. And then came back and I was still playing. And then it was time to go to bed and I was still playing. And I didn't stop until like Emily came down and was like, you're <laughs> keeping us awake. Like I, there was a stretch. I wasn't a great, uh, I wasn't super committed until I was about like, 13 or something but then after that i all, kind of all i did was so you're music. like a full-on harp nerd i was a full-on harp nerd because like that i mean that's intense focus yeah and it was consuming yeah and i did and i did some other extracurriculars and stuff but i didn't i was like, like what theater I yeah was, i was a little but like a weird like the nerdy version like i went to like shakespeare camp and and <laughs> you went to world folk camp and shakespeare mm -hmm. camp it's all it's all making sense to me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you liked acting? I liked acting. Yeah, we were in, you were in a movie. You were in Paul's movie. I was. Sorry, so let's get let's get let's get further up. So now mm. you're a full on harp nerd and you're fifteen and you are living and breathing harp and composing music and then after high school, like where do you go with your music? Oh, I went to Mills College, which is in Oakland. And you studied music? I did. I started by studying composition and then I changed my major and for a little while was trying to do a self-designed major in ethno ethnomusicology focusing on Senegalese music and then I changed my major again to creative writing and then I dropped out. Okay so how many years did you get through? I went I got through one semester then I dropped out and spent a year back in Nevada City yeah and then I went back to school for I think three years and then dropped out because one of those little home recordings I had made had found its way to Dan Koretsky at Drag City, and he was like, let's make a record. Really? Yeah. How did it get there? Via Will Oldham. Will Oldham saw you how? 
So Will were... Oldham had played in Nevada City yeah. at, at Magic Theater. Right. Um, and my friend Adam Klein yeah. had given him one of my home recordings and had written my email address on had it. Had you been playing out? Had you been doing gigs? Had you been... No, not at that point. Um, I didn't start playing, basically, unt- playing shows until... If I have the timeline right, I think it was after Dan had reached out to me about making a record. And I think at uh, my then boyfriend Noah was really close friends with Devendra Banhart, who so dated I, my girlfriend. Yes, who dated your girlfriend. But also, so I knew him. Just we were friends. And, Devendra and Noah and everybody. Yes, Devendra and, they, and Noah were very close. And they were in San Francisco. Yes. And Noah was. You met Noah how? He's from Nevada City. Like oh, I you grew yeah. up with him? I didn't know him growing up, but he was around. Uh-huh. He was a little older than me, and right. then I met him. And we ended up, at, for one stretch of time, I was an undergrad at Mills, and he was a grad student at Mills. And Uh-huh. He's a music guy. He's a music guy, yeah. But engineering, mostly. Well, at that point, I mean, he's a composer also. Uh-huh. He got a composition, a master's in composition, but he also was very strong on the engineering side so he okay so so between will oldham and noah and y- y- your stuff got to drag city yeah yes <laughs> i mean did noah did noah help you with those home recordings yeah i mean he set up a microphone and press play on his computer and left the room <laughs> they weren't they weren't i mean i think he would say as well that they were no no that's the one I have, the one that yeah, Sarah has. Yeah, there that wasn't you gave any. Friends or whatever. Yeah, there was no like forethought given to right. Mike Angles or just anything. like here, get your stuff out. Yeah, like a demo. Almost. Well, no, honestly, at first it was here, record this so you don't forget this song that right. you just wrote, and oh. then and then the next step basically was like you're playing a couple shows, so here's a thing that you can sell at the shows. It's interesting. The difference between you and Will is that uh, he seems to put out everything that he does. <laughs> 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 I feel like that guy puts out a record every couple of months. I get yeah. a new Bonnie Prince Billy yeah. record. It's like, what? There's more? What is, this, what is this guy just put one record out and then just start the next one? Yeah, I'm very envious of that, actually. Are you? But but, yeah. but look, wait. But, not to discredit anybody, but I got to assume in listening to your, your music and into these records, I mean, a lot goes into it. You know, you have to... Orchestras have to put to be put together. Mm. There's a lot of stuff. You're not just playing guitar, and it's like, who wants to drum on this, <laughs> really? Right? I, I mean, okay. So now we're now uh, we're in it. So you do the first it. Drag City record with Dan, yeah, who loves you. I love him, and you are, you know, you're, a, a, I think, a big act for them. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, yeah, yes. Yeah. I can't like it. Must have just been mind blowing to people. Who had never seen it before. Just this, like, this woman comes out with this giant harp and sings in this amazing voice with these completely unique, because it's so gripping, Joanna. <laughs> you come on stage with a harp, people are going to be like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and then, like, then the sound of a harp is like, what, 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 what? Yeah. I mean, that's true. That's why I, the first person I saw who played the harp you know, I was a little kid, and I was like, "What is that? I need to do that." That's, and, I mean, and that's any any harpist you see, I think will will. Oh yeah, even if it's in a cheesy environment, yeah. I, I don't know why it's been like. I, I think it's been a long time since it's been associated with you know brunches and you know sort of passive <laughs> playing, hasn't it? I mean, I imagine that still exists. I mean, that was how I, you know, 
paid my car insurance for the first like playing what brunches you did do the brunch yeah, circuit the yeah heart, the heart the, brunch circuit um, you know Loomis and Sacramento Rockland a lot of these places have country clubs and I used to in high school and during that year off after yeah. I left Mills when yeah. I was just like working at a coffee shop I would go play Mother's Day brunches and Easter brunches what was your uh, what was your set list I mean like standards all instrumental uh -huh. um you know a little classical easy listening classical uh -huh. some uh -huh. Paco Bell's Cannon some Beatles songs some <laughs> pop <laughs> classics yeah yeah that you learned by ear well yeah, although I would have charts, you know, like not charts exactly, but I would take the sheet music and I would write the um, chord, yeah. you know, like yeah. just write the letter right. G above it so that I wouldn't get lost. And, and then I would just kind of just improvise on them, play the play them straight once and then play them like 18 times longer. Right. Spacing out and just playing weird little noodly stuff with my right hand. And everyone would be like eating their eggs Benedict. And, it's brutal. Yeah. It's a little brutal as a musician mm. to be background. Or you just I guess, you get lost yeah. in it. No, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was brutal, and I wouldn't say that I got lost in it. I would say it was better as a job goes than a lot of jobs. Sure. So you put out this first record, and you know, Drag City, and, and Bonnie Prince Billy's a fan, and you've got you know the, this unintentional alignment with this style of music that's going on in San Francisco at that moment. But uh, but somehow or another, you, you know, Van Dyke Park Parks. How does how does that happen? That was. You know, a couple of years later, I was a big fan of Song Cycle, mm -hmm. his record. And I had this album I had written, and I knew I wanted it to be an orchestral record. So I was looking for someone to work with on that. Um, so you reached out to him? I did. Mm -hmm. I wrote him a letter. And he met with me in Los Angeles at a hotel it was the Roosevelt Hotel before the Roosevelt Hotel got like redone? Redone. Oh, it was kind of trashy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I could afford it. You know? uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I was staying at the Roosevelt with my harp. Yeah. <clears throat> and Van Dyke and his lovely wife came and met me in my room and yeah. sat on the little like chairs in the Roosevelt. And I sat, I think, on the edge of a bed and played the record for the, him. With the big harp? Yeah. I drove my big harp to. How, what do you, so you have to have a truck your whole life, right? No, usually vans. Okay. Vans all my life. Yeah. Um, you can fit it into certain wagons. Like I drive sort of just a wagon now. Uh-huh. But um So you sat there and played for Van Dyke. I and played him um, the record that ended up being East. East? I just played yeah. the songs sort of in the order that I knew they would be. Uh-huh. And they just sat there and listened. And then Van Dyke said a few really sweet things to me and I wasn't exactly sure like if it, was deal, if, it was, if it was a deal or not? Yeah, because he, he was so straightforward and nice about it. Like that, what? What did he say? Like, just sort of like, yeah, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. You know, that kind of thing. Oh, right, right. And, then, and, and <clears throat> he paid me a very nice compliment that I'm not going to repeat on the air because it sound, just sounds like I'll, to, I'll be tooting my own horn. But, but it was like very nice and I held it very close for years after that, you know, and it was just like, you know. It was a really nice experience, and then we started just sending things back and forth. Music, like sound files? Yes. He, you know, would sketch ideas out, yeah. like on a, on a, a really um, quaint, like old <laughs> right. program that he had. I don't even know what 
the name for it was, but you know, where the little horn sounds would be like, <laughs> and like the violin sounded like, you know, yeah. yeah. but it was enough for me to understand the shapes and the harmonic things that were happening and the density and the, you know, rhythmic stuff. And, um, I did the same thing with him that I've done with everything since every record since with collaborators, which is just basically that I wrote like a long kind of essay about what I wanted each <laughs> song to be in terms of what I wanted the arrangement to convey emotionally, what references or touchstones I wanted it to include, if any, in terms of actual sort of, you know, like th I want this to be a Copeland-esque moment or like, you You're know. that on top <clears throat> of all that. Usually there's certain songs where I don't have as good of an idea and then there's more back and forth. Right. And then there's, I will also do, I'll print out the lyrics and I'll write above individual lyrics what I want to be happening here you know like this is I want this to be like a brass contrapuntal moment with four like lower voice brass instruments or I want this to be you know um, a, a bunch of violins playing in unison so that they create an unviolin-esque almost synthetic sounding flat you know no vibrato or th like these sorts of things and just notes or something less specific, like I want it to get really big here. I want everything to drop out here. I, you know, I don't want any brass here. I want it just woodwinds, that kind of thing. Um, so you hear it all in your head? Not necessarily. I mean, for me, that that that's that's still pretty non-specific. Those are, yeah. those are sort of textural or right. Yeah. Um, sometimes I hear it in my head. There were there were a few collaborations on this last record where I actually sent like a sound file of me humming a. a an actual part I wanted to be played or playing it on like a synth, you know, like this is the flute, right? you know, counter voice I want here or whatever. But usually I don't hear it. So this is in lieu of being writing music. Yeah. This is how you do it. Yes. Although that said, I think that if I was, you know, a whiz at notation and I could orchestrate and write music perfectly, I still don't think I could have... I mean, that record, East would have sounded different. You yeah. know, like these songs on this record would have sounded different. I think in the best case scenario, a good collaboration creates something that's better than, you know, right. than like um, I'm writing in a vacuum up until that point and then right. I open it, open the like aperture up or whatever a little bit, like let in this sort of new element um, and the conversation happens around the song and then... Like, I think there, there's always an order of operations for me when I'm making a record where I start in a total vacuum. Yeah. I don't want anybody's opinion about anything. And then slowly, 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 as I go along, by the very end when I'm mixing, I will, like, play mixes for people and be like, does this sound too buried to you or too tinny or too whatever? So, so you're equally as engaged and nerdy about the entire production process from you know the second it comes to you compositionally to all the way through yes more now than i used to be like when i made that first record when i made milk eyed mender noah recorded it and mixed it and i think i was only in the room to like pick performances where i was like ah, i'm out of what well, was simpler in terms of you know what was involved it was simpler in terms of what was involved but if i were to make a solo harp and vocal record today i guarantee you i would be sitting there like <laughs> with eight <laughs> zillion comments uh it's like because the thing was but that are I you didn't... nuts or are you like just mm. a, a more mature artist about it i am a little nuts about certain things but i also just think like 
I didn't have an opinion when I was 21 and recording because I had listened to like six records ever. You know what I mean? How like, do you end up being so insulated? I mean, did you watch TV and go to movies? We didn't have TV. I went to movies sometimes. Um, but we, there was music being played around the house constantly. I mean, everybody, both like performative and like records were played. But like, I listened, my brother would have albums and I would listen to them and like, you know, just whatever was like mainstream pop, you know, yeah. I would be like singing along to Sublime right. or whatever, you know, yeah. like, but I, but I didn't purchase an album that I would put on when I was home alone of my own volition until I bought Fleetwood Mac Rumors when I was 16 and listened to that basically like, you know, hermetically <laughs> until college. That was my... So that album has to have influenced me like way more than anything, but I don't... I couldn't point to where or how exactly that could be traced in any of my songs, but I... I didn't even get Tusk until I was like 21 or 22. How does Albini get involved with two records? Mm, I've talked to Steve, you know. You have. Yes. I love him so much. How'd you get, to, how'd you get hooked up with Steve Albini? Because like, people like associate him with a lot of music, but the truth is he records a lot of different types of music. But it seems like he, did he actually come out here to record you? He did. That's a He's rare thing. He's done it several times. He must love you. We love each other. Oh, how'd you meet that guy? I met him, well, I didn't even, I reached out to him before I ever knew him. Because when I was working on East, I, I've sort of like always been really obsessed with the idea of balancing elements out, especially yeah. in collaboration. So I was working with Van Dyke on these kind of like sumptuous, lush, cinematic, um, very romantic, um, and slightly Copeland-esque arrangements orchestral yeah. arrangements and i it was really important to me that at the core of this record would then be a recording that was that basically sounded like you were sitting in the room with me like i didn't want to lose right intimacy and the immediacy of the harp and vocal performance yeah, yeah. and i feel like steve is the person who basically it's almost he delivers basically reality but he delivers the like beautiful version of reality like if it's if it's a documentary he'll yeah. deliver the version where like the lens is really beautiful and right, right. and like you're lit really well but it's still a documentary you know like he he it's he records like how the room sounds but somehow the best version of how the room sounds he angles everything exactly correctly he makes sure the instrument is angled correctly so that the resonance it just sounds warm and real and beautiful he's just got a feel huh he's just got a feel so i wanted him to record it but then i wanted jim o'rourke to mix it because then i wanted this third element because i feel like the way that jim o'rourke mixes records would be a strong reference to basically the van dyke parks early stuff and randy newman early stuff and the this kind of um very early 70s way of treating an orchestra that doesn't happen very much now kind of the the opposite of lush cinematic orchestral treatment one in which the individual textures and voices and character of each instrument exists and sort of rises up in these little vignettes yeah, yeah like yeah. very stylized hyper stylized right. and i feel like that's how jim mixes and so i really wanted each of those roles to be fulfilled by each of those people and I didn't really want any crossover, huh. which is sort of what I did on this last record, too. You know, the, the, the various, that the only, you know, because it was a five-year process to make this last record. And right. I, I wanted it to be the case that the only common element from 
step to step would be me so that right. I could kind of like oversee it and sort it and there wouldn't be too much emotional investment or ego on the part of anybody else involved where I could just kind of like take what worked and and maybe shuck off what didn't work and so by working with these you know these different you know people who are helping arrange and people who are helping um sort of mold the sound you saw them as just you know just you know almost separate pieces that all sort of came under you and you could use them however you wanted sure although it wasn't even that i mean as long as in the moment in which that person and i were in a room together we're on equal footing they're not under me it's just that 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 the finished product from that phase of the collaboration is then something that I can work with on my own and right you know right so once you do once you you've sort of executed your collaboration and vision for the vocals and the harp and then for the orchestra with Van Dyke and then with Jim you're going to do you know the mix yeah that, you know like y- y- your relationship with each one is balanced in collaboration and then you can sort of like thank you now we're going to put it all together yes that's true although the one thing I will say is the, even the mix on East on that record, which yeah. Jim did, I hadn't, I still hadn't got to the point where I am now in terms of mixing, where I need to be in the room, like overseeing and right. and almost directing like every move. Like at that stage, I still allowed myself to be dismissed from the room for you know five hours, six hours straight, where I was just like lying on a couch outside while Jim. Were you dismissed, or did Jim go? All right, I got it. No, it was kind of like, get out of here. Like, but he, the way that he works, which I respect, is that he basically wants an opportunity to do, to give his take, his complete take. Like, his, this is how I would mix it. And then I can give notes. You know, um, I've only listened to, I, I, I didn't really know who he is, but I got one of his solo albums. Maybe from, is he a Drag City He is, yeah. So that probably came through there. And I I remember playing it and thinking, like, this guy's a real guy. Because, primarily because of the production. Yeah, he's an incredible producer. Uh um, It's almost Beatles-like, right? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, the the range of what he does and can do is pretty astonishing. He he is also a very classically trained dude, but he... You know, like for for East in his mixing of that record, he did a final pass basically on the arrangement where he he was like, and it was very reverent towards Van Dyke's compositions. But yeah. he he would he just sort of decided like this particular section. Now that the record exists as a complete thing, I can I just feel that this moment needs to go away. You know, so he would like edit. It was like a final phase edit of yeah. the arrangements, which is something that I now do myself and did with divers but at that point wouldn't have felt the confidence to do and also you learn new things from these people i would imagine yeah i also i learned so much about mixing from from jim like the way that he just sort of carves things out and rides yeah yeah. the vocals you know like the the vocal volume is modulated so much throughout you know where it sits in the mix even spatially it, it sometimes moves over the course of a song depending on what's happening instrumentally Wow. I learned a lot from him. And from Van Dyke, what did you learn? <laughs> Van Dyke, uh, I mean, I'm a huge admirer of his. Um, he was incredibly collaborative with me on East. I think that's maybe not necessarily as much how he works normally. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he, I think, traditionally actually is more of a, like, this is my take on the song. Well, I think we all, most people who are just regular mainstreamy people know him from working with Brian Wilson, right? Yes. On Smile. Yeah. 
And that seemed to be kind of a collaboration, a strained, yeah. a strained collaboration. Yeah. Ours wasn't particularly strained. Well, he's older. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, but I but I think, you know, we've talked about doing stuff since then and and ruled it out basically because the way that he now works is not the way that we worked then. Right. Like that like it's no longer an option for me to send five passes of notes about think what i need to be oh yeah he doesn't doesn't want to deal with it (laughs) i mean i don't want to speak on his behalf i don't want to word it differently than how he would word it but that's but he you know he he tells the best stories in the world and he's a gentleman and a delight yeah well good so on like now on east was did you when, when and i know i'm getting sort of specific do you see all these records you obviously see them as whole records yeah. And do you see them as having a story? Do they have a story in your mind? Only, only in the broadest definition of the Okay, word so story. each song is separate, but you are thinking in terms of the record. Well, it it depends which record we're talking about. But like it Well on ease, it seems <laughs> like, you know, even this construction of the cover and the way that it's laid out and the even the 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 painting, the riff on that kind of symbolic kind of renaissance yeah. Whose Whose style is that? What's that based on? That <laughs> painting? Oh, um, what, Frau Filippo Lippi? Mm-hmm. That, yeah, I think. Like there, there's something that demands you, that you reckon with this as a whole piece and as a, as something that is is all one thing. Yeah, that's true. And definitely Ben Veerling, who painted the that piece, um, he and I worked for a long time on... Uh, you know, figuring out sort of the allegorical stuff. Right. Like every element in that painting is representative of something in the tradition of a lot of Renaissance right. painting, and it all connects back to the record. Uh huh. So you you were all part. You were part of that, and it was very specific work. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And the way the text is, and the you know the sort of Renaissancey feel of, of yeah. all of it. You you this, you're all on top of all of that. Yes. <laughs> And then we get to, you know, have one on me where it's almost like this kind of like 1920s Theta Bera cover. Yeah. yeah. And the images that you chose to put into the records were something very different, something, you know, modern, something, you know, sensual and something. Right. W- what was the intention? Basically, with each record I've done so far, the the narrator of the record has been some version of myself you know mm-hmm. it hasn't it hasn't been the, a pure unedited version of myself but it's been sort of a you know the story the songs have elements of autobiography or you know speaking to my own experience and they're united by some common character and that character is you know an exaggerated and or edited and or stylized version of myself and the way in which that character is portrayed in the packaging <laughs> and the art is meant to basically illustrate like this is the narrator of I, the record right. and so in the case of have one on me well let's say with east it was a much more um well i don't want to I, I don't want to say too much about it because i sort of want to leave it open to interpretation but there but there's sort of a different um uh like archetypical uh identity to the narrator on each record and have one on me obviously is more of like the maiden Uh (laughs) you know archetypically speaking and like it's it is much more physical much more um 
the songs speak a lot more to um, very uh, sort of physical life stuff, like drinking and eating and like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, being a woman. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like more, there's obviously more like romantic stuff on that record and more just sort of like... Um, and it's compositionally different. I mean, there, is, there yeah. are songs that 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 are are you know they're they're beautifully produced and orchestrated, but they're like there's a, a you know the repetitions of chord patterns are, are a little more accessible on some of those. They are, yeah. It's it is it's a much earthier record right. all around, like yeah. more grounded, more earthy, more grounded in like body and um, and also youth. like hooks. Yeah, <laughs> 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 it's true. There's some of those. There's some of those. I think that like the melody and chord structure that right. I start with generally happen around the same time as me having like I don't think I would have the desire to write the song in the first place if I wasn't thinking about this group of things like there there I've got like a cloud of sort of ideas in my head that feel like they're probably connected and mm-hmm. I want to I have a compulsion to like spread them out and make the connections clear to myself there's a general idea or collection of ideas that I have preoccupying me, yeah. you know, like the idea of, or questions about permanence or impermanence, uh, monuments and um, lionization or erasure, culturally mm-hmm. speaking, and right. um, what it means to be remembered, like what that actually means. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I think what happens is when I'm preoccupied with all that stuff, which is basically to say death, you know, right. like uh, then, then when I encounter things that are interesting to me that, that might in some way connect to that, then they just sort of take root more. And I, and I read more about them and sometimes I reject them. Like this doesn't really apply. Right. Uh, and then other times I don't reject them and I feel like I want to know more. And then that'll send me tangentially down some other direction. And then usually like with a song like this one, yeah, you reach a point where there's this like electric thing that starts happening where you turn up information that's too perfectly connected, you know, right. that just circles back in a way that you just start seeing the song actually form itself. And it's, and it's, things are doubled and tripled like the same, you see the same word, but it means three different things and they all have resonant truth in the story you're trying to tell it within that song or, you know, like, mm-hmm. and then, and then it just, there's a velocity, you know, like it picks up and picks up and picks up. And by the end, it's just sort of writing itself. And then all you have to do is find the right words because they have to, you know, adhere to a particular rhyme pattern or whatnot. But that's just. That's, do, you, do you do you have um, do you do things for fun? <laughs> <laughs> I was I, one of my really good friends who lives in L.A., Anna, she and I go on walks and go out to lunch and stuff. And she and I. <clears throat> We're like walking recently yeah. last fall after my record came uh-huh. out, and she was she was like kind of mad at me, not mad, but she was like, "I just don't understand. You haven't talked about this at all. Like the you know, I was working on the record for like three years, three and, years. No, I worked well, I worked on the record for five years, but three years of that around i was yeah. i was hanging in la and yeah. walking with her and having right. lunch and stuff. She's like, you never once talked about it ever." You know, I would talk. We would talk about like pillow fabric for our houses Mm -hmm. and like you know restaurants we wanted to try and whatever. Like, I mean, we talk about 
whatever. Yeah. She's a great friend. We talk about the, yeah. the gamut of things. But the point is, like, I, I kind of compartmentalize. Like, there's when I'm working, then that's how I work. And when I'm not working, then I don't really go to that place in my brain. And I just. You, yeah. you can do that. I do that. I have to do that. Right. I would be insufferable to myself if I didn't. Well, what, what, when did you learn the lesson that, because I imagine that given that experience as a child where you locked in and might not have gotten out, that was there a point where you had to learn how to get out? I honestly think it's, it was more like a social insecurity or social anxiety thing. Like the, the part, Uh I think I knew pretty early on that the same part of myself that, um, would compulsively sit and work on harp music for like six hours straight wasn't going to be a hit at Nevada Union High School, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> and, you know. So you had to, like, sort of tend to that other part. Yeah. I got to go talk to the people. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't good at it then, and I'm not good at it now. Like, I still, to this day, have horrible social awkwardness and anxiety and, like, you know, will walk away from conversations being like, why did I say that? You know, like, but... But there, I think at some there was just a split from an early age where I'm, I have like private self, and then the way I interact with people, and they don't really intersect very much. Well, you certainly, you know, like married a dude that you know it comes with a, a full history of social stuff. I mean, you you know, marrying into the SNL family, yeah, uh, you know that that must have been a crash course, and you know, well, well, those kind of people, I think, fortunately, knowing lots of them. You don't have to talk much. <laughs> no, you, you, that's very true. That's very true. <laughs> you can just sort of hang out and get some laughs. And, yeah, that's true. And They're... listen to them talk. <laughs> <laughs> Although, like, I don't know. It's surprising to me how many comedians, like, actually want to talk about things besides comedy. Oh, yeah. No, they're all yeah. very, you know, they have a full range of, they're thoughtful but, people. But you're also totally right. I mean, there's many a dinner where I've just sat there, like, watching the Mm-hmm. SNL anecdote, oh. like ball pong from person to person across the table. Well, he like like I don't you know he's uh, Andy. Like my only knowledge of him is when I talk to him in here. Yeah, and uh, and he seems like a, a very uh, sweet and sensitive, decent dude. He is all of those things <laughs> well, many times over. Well, that's good. Yeah, he's the best. Yeah, when I saw him, um, you know, sitting up there watching you, like like because like. As a comic and as somebody, you know, who does a certain thing and like, you know, you know, my girlfriend, she's a painter yeah. And, yeah. and you are a very, you know, special and specific artist that, that you, you know, really knows what they're doing. And, and this is what you do. And, you know, it's completely different than what I do. And, you know, and her, she, I don't understand where her paintings come from. Huh. So when I, you know, of getting choked up for some reason, but oh. when I saw, when I saw him just sitting there watching you, like with this kind of like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that there's a, a tremendous, you know, a, a, a real kind of beauty to a mutual respect between creative yeah. people, you know. I think that's very true. <laughs> and it's so fortunate that you, you're from totally different disciplines. Yeah, that's true. Because then I can be, I'm very awestruck by what he does. Right. And right. It's, it's a very special thing. And they just don't cross. They it, don't. You know what I mean? And like, I just, uh, you know, it must be just, um, it's it's healthy in a way. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the last song, you know, time is as a symptom, you know, as a poetic idea and as, and, and as a love song or an exploration of love, you know, 
you know, as you, you know, you can see you maturing and getting older on your records. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Can you? Yeah. I think, yeah, you can see me like, I think that you can see my relationship with time and death shifting lyrically. Uh huh. And do you find that, you, you know, sort of, you know, creating these, this poetry and I like, you know, like I somehow made a note here that, you know, that when you start to really engage the possibilities of music and uh, as you get older and, and more sophisticated with it, if these things are something that you, you know, kind of meditate on and, and are, you know, somewhat terrifying, you know, mortality and love. Yeah. I mean, do you find relief from fear through the music? To some extent. I think it feels good to be doing something. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't mean in the sense of distraction. I mean, like, taking an action. Mm -hmm. And obviously that this record in particular is asking unanswerable questions. So it's not like it's complete once the questions have been answered. They're not going to be answered. But I think there was, like, a sorting process that happened for me as I went through writing the songs where I was at least breaking down the questions and re reordering them somehow in my mind in a way that made the unanswerability of them less unbearable uh-huh. in my life that I could be more comfortable with the unanswerability of the questions in general in general and maybe sort out one or two that felt answerable to me like a sliver of a question or a half question or something. but like in in the sense that <clears throat> like as you move through these records and these these the creative process and then the the final pressing do you are they are they sort of documents of your coming to grips with these different parts of yourself i mean like when you say unanswerable questions are you more at peace after this record i Um, think so but you know it's like you know like in in the most vague sort of simplistic sense it's like you can ask, you can have a song that asks, like, what's the point of everything? I don't know. Okay, so why do you keep doing things? I don't know. But then if you zoom in small enough, like, there's, there at some level, on some level of detail, there's some question that you can answer. And so you just have to hold on to that one. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's a great place to end. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah. Are you or do are do you experience like um like are you sad? Hmm. I mean, do no, you, do you I have was darkness. A, I do have darkness. I was a very sad child, and I was somewhat depressed at times as a teenager. For and reasons I, or just because? <laughs> when, I was a chi- when I was a child, I was sad for reasons, but you know, comical, like right. you know, like nuclear war and AIDS and yeah. starvation and yeah. Somalia and just like, you know, the wash of, right. of terrifying. How, we're all going to die. Yeah, we're all going to die. Yeah. My my mom was a member of a group called, I think, Doctors Against Nuclear Disarmament right. or something, and they used to meet sure. in our living room, and I was so little that I think that nobody thought that I was taking it in, but I really was. So I was oh my God. terrified of <laughs> nuclear war when I was a like, sure. toddler. And, you know, things like that. And then I I took a chill pill, as it were, and stopped thinking about those things quite as much. The chill pill being decision? No, you made a choice? No, no. 
I think I just sort of um, turned – when you're really – when you're that little, you haven't quite built up the defense to learn how to turn away from something that's frightening. Mm-hmm. You know, you just yeah. look straight at it like yeah. a, a little baby that doesn't know how to blink in the bright light or something. Like, it's you're just looking at these glaring yeah. horrors. Yeah. And then I think we learn a little bit how to meter them out and um, break them into doses that are considerable – and don't just paralyze you with fear and sadness. Compartmentalize. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So I did that um, yeah. as I got older. And then, I don't know. I, it's really a long-winded answer to your question, but I think I'm actually probably a very, like, very happy person. I don't know. I feel happy most of the time if I check in with myself. I get well, stressed and freaked out in traffic and stuff, but other than that, I'm pretty happy. Yeah, because I feel like your your music and how absorbed you can get, like just seeing you perform live... It's almost like, you, you know, when you're in it, you know, and the and the other instruments are playing and you're at the center of this thing, you know, con, you know, it's sort of completely engaged in your music as somebody who's watching it. it it's it's something that is happening. You know, we're watching a performance, but but there there's something happening on stage that is so unique and specific and and not quite we're connecting with the sound but there's a, you're almost feeling like god they're like so into it that's true yeah it's <laughs> it and, and and then when you come out and you're just sort of tuning you're like oh she's human okay good ah! good there's pe- there're people <laughs> that that person is not some alien being right it's I a mean, good I, thing it's I, a good thing yeah i de- i definitely think that like qu- qualifying it in any way in terms of it being good or bad i i can't say but like you are watching me on a good night at least in like a fully actualized state where i'm where i'm there's no separation between like whatever the most essential part of myself is and the thing that i'm doing like all the all the fake shit or the learned shit or the fear shit or the um social shit it just in the moment of playing shucks away and then as soon as i stop it just gloms back on me and you know so, well you feel that and that's exactly yeah. what you feel and that's uh it's an amazing thing you do you're a very special artist thank you it was good talking to you so good talking to you take it in take it in just having a conversation with her does not do her justice go listen to uh go listen to divers and the album before too. Pick your pick whatever record you want. Tour dates. I'll be at the Tripany House Tuesdays. I don't know how many of them are sold out, but uh, judging by how I feel right now, there'll be something to watch. I gotta put earplugs in now because my ears are going.
Boomer lives.